I was recently rewatching a thriller favorite of mine that I hadn't seen in some time called The Game, directed by David Fincher. And one of the major things I couldn't quite wrap my head around by the end of it, something I hadn't really realized from back when I first watched, was just how visceral and truly traumatizing the experience of the main character really is. A little bit of background first. The game follows Nicholas Van Orton, a wealthy San Francisco banker who was given this mysterious gift for his 48th birthday by his brother, Conrad. The gift in question is a sort of entertainment experience provided by this company, Consumer Recreation Services, which involves Nick's participation in a game that infiltrates his life in strange and unusual ways. Over the course of the film, the game stakes grow more and more dire, with tensions escalating quickly as Nick is pushed to his wit's end and to his psychological limits, coming to a certain point of being unable to ascertain the difference between what is the game and what is real life. And while watching Nick fight and claw his way through the twists and turns the game throws at him is quite an entertaining, exhilarating experience, a major critique I have of the film is that, for all of the grueling, twisted, invasive things that we witness Nick endure, as his company takes control of every facet of his life, in the aftermath, none of Nick's trauma is ever addressed. In fact, the closing scenes from the movie leads myself to come to the conclusion that he's left this horrifying experience essentially unscathed. This really rubs me the wrong way because it's counterintuitive to a major fact that's been present and made known throughout the movie, which is that Nick is haunted by a past defining traumatic event, the suicide of his father. Throughout the movie, we see these clips stylized as choppy old camera film showing us memories from Nick's childhood. We see scenes of him at a wedding, smiling, and standing next to his proud father. But eventually, it's revealed to us through these clips that Nick's father ends up killing himself, jumping off a tall building to his death. One of the important things to note is that his father died at the age of 48, the same age Nick turns on his birthday in the film. And Nick seems to be imbued by his father's presence, going as far as wearing his watch, an 18th birthday gift given to him by his mother, who has also passed. Now, it's never revealed why Nick's dad committed suicide. It's even told to Nick later by his housekeeper that no one around him expected it. But still, Nick is constantly questioning how much of his father there is in him. And the game doesn't shy away from testing Nick's limits in ways that bring him very close to death's grasp. Nick's similarities to his father are compounded in the relationship he has with his brother. Conrad is a bit of a rascal, with past issues of substance abuse, and when the two agree to meet on Nick's birthday, Nick sort of assumes that Conrad needs something from him. But this isn't the case at all. It's in this scene that Conrad gives Nick his birthday gift. But the question arises, what do you get for the man who has everything? In this case, it's the prospect to, as Conrad puts it, make your life fun. Conrad has experience and played the game himself, and now he's trying to gift it to Nick to which Nick has a healthy suspicion about. You could tell by the way the pair interact that after his father's death, Nick assumed a parental role over Conrad. There's a scene much later in the film where this is explored as Nick is delving deeper into the craziness of the game, even entertaining thoughts of the CRS being a conspiracy that is set out to ruin his life entirely. He is visited late at night by his frantic, hyperventilating Conrad, who is fearing the CRS himself. Now, Conrad is so paranoid and suspicious that he eventually convinces himself that Nick is actually working for the CRS to ruin his own life. Now, it's at this point the audience and Nick don't actually know that this whole charade by Conrad 
is part of the game. Conrad is feigning hysteria in order to bring something out of Nick, to point him in the right direction of the narrative CRS has been crafting. But in their manic conversation, he brings to light some of the truths of their relationship that extend beyond the game. He says that Nick resents him and that it kills him that Conrad is living his life, going as far as calling Nick a manipulative control freak. But the line that really cements the basis of Nick and Connie's relationship is when Conrad says that nobody asked Nick to play dad, to which Nick yells back that I ever have a choice. And this idea of control is essential to Nick's character and his livelihood. As a wealthy head of an investment banking firm, his life revolves around giving others orders and in general getting his way. He opts for a life of isolation most of the times, as his most comfortable in private. But he's at his most weakest and his most vulnerable when that semblance of control is taken away from him. And this is the main driving force of the game. Nick's life becomes putty in the hands of the CRS as they test him physically and psychologically, weaving him through the story as he's forced into positions that from Nick's vantage point seem life and death. CRS commits a number of atrocities and horrors to Nick, from him being chased and shot at, to seizing his bank account information, to drugging and entombing him in Mexico. But one of the scariest things they have control over is the level of surveillance and access they have to Nick. There are cameras planted everywhere, watching Nick's movement, and there's a point in the film where they infiltrate his home while he's gone and graffiti the walls all over. Not only is there this harm to Nick physically and the grounds of his privacy being broken, he's tested psychologically as well. When Nick comes back to his graffitied home, he finds a wooden clown with a note in its mouth saying, Like my father before me, I choose eternal sleep. This note, harrowingly accompanied by a picture of Nick's father laying dead on the ground after his suicide. The prospect that a company could have this much access and control over a person's entire life to the point of getting his entire network of people he comes into contact with to be in on the game, is insane. CRS is able to construct an entire new reality on this basis of paranoia that is instilled into Nick as he fights for his life. In many ways, this movie isn't too dissimilar to The Truman Show, a movie in which the main character, Truman, is being raised in a simulated television show revolving around his life, where everyone he knows is in on it, except for him. And as sort of fine lines and edges of the world around him start to become blurrier, Truman begins to become skeptical about the nature of his reality. But unlike Truman, who discovers the life he has been living is a lie, Nick comes to the conclusion that the game he's playing is the truth, with CRS actually being an evil corporation pulling the strings behind him. The climax of Nick's paranoia towards the game that really underscores how traumatic the entire ordeal is, happens in this brash manner. Nick is on the top of the roof of the CRS building with a gun, threatening to kill a CRS employee, who he's gotten to know throughout the movie, Christine. He's locked the doors to the roof, and he can hear the police behind, cutting through the lock. And Nick is hysterical to the point where he doesn't believe Christine, who is frantically telling him that no, it really is a game. She says to him that Conrad is there, and that when they cut through that door, there will be champagne and a big party, and the game will finally be over. But with the impact of the entire experience, the conspiracy that has been infiltrating Nick's psyche, destroying his ability to tell what is real and not real, he simply doesn't believe. He is determined to destroy the very force he believes is now coming to kill him. And when the door is finally cut open, 
and Conrad is revealed with a big bottle of champagne, it's far too late. Nick has already shot. His brother falls to the ground, dead. It's in this moment Nick is confounded by the madness he's been brought to. And as he sees the grieving CRS employees next to his dead brother on the floor, Nick cries, dropping his gun. And he resolves that the only thing left to do in this moment of deep sorrow and tragedy is to take after his father and chose eternal sleep. He leaps to his death off the edge of the building. But rather than die, he falls through this breakaway glass into a big hall onto a giant airbag. CRS officials help him to safety, and as Nick comes to, he realizes he's in a room of his friends. Conrad is there, alive and well. It really was a game, the birthday present from Conrad. It's after this that the movie shortly wraps up, dusts off its hands and rolls the credits, and it's the way this movie walks away triumphantly from the mess it's made that leaves so much more to be desired. They've painted the picture of a man struck by his past trauma with complex relationships who has now been put through so much misery, having his life hijacked and the fabric of his world destroyed to the point where they make him believe he's killed his brother, put through so much grief and pain that for all intents and purposes he kills himself. What does that do to a person? To see images of your father's suicide, messages taunting you that you'll inevitably do the same, to be unable to cry out for help as you are emotionally scarred forever. Nick's battle wounds are healed at the end, and he never truly reflects on the damage this game surely must have brought him. And I think this speaks to some of the pitfalls that come in the storytelling in the mystery thriller genre. So much emphasis is placed on whether Nick is still taking part in the game or not. Is he really in danger or is there an invisible safety net prepared to save him during his darkest hours? And when we finally reach that end and we're able to relieve ourselves in the fact that it was just a game, we aren't able, even for a moment, to even entertain the idea that a game, especially one of this magnitude, can still have long-lasting consequences, scars that never truly heal. The game dazzles and excites, it terrifies and mystifies, but it doesn't let us examine the way people live with their experiences. The human condition is one of totality, we are both affected within and without by the major events that shape our lives. And while the outer game we witness is detailed in its complexity, layered with rich twists and turns Nick and the audience never sees coming, I can't help but feel that that attention to detail might just be skin deep. Mind Theater is a subtle effort produced and written by me, Anwak Mbaddin. To subscribe, look for Mind Theater on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For updates on the show and upcoming episodes, follow Mind Theater Pod on Twitter. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.